0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to clarify spelling, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page, CCL ftucson.online.church. And there at the right hand side of the screen, you can of course leave your comments at your leisure and also write for future reference and note our email address, which will be in a banner at the bottom of the screen. It'll also have a countdown clock to when we are next live streaming, or of course when you want to engage with us if we are streaming in your respective time zone. We also have social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you want to give us a like or subscribe, the added benefit is they will notify you when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, in case of technical malfunctions or internet censorship, if we are for whatever reason not streaming on those broadcasts, note, Our broadcast is from Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S., or Pacific if we're out on Daylight Savings Time. You can join us there without any hindrance on our website. We want to make sure that that is your primary ministry media meeting place for engaging with us on Answering Sincere. Bible questions. Those are the rules. If they're sincere, that means you want to hear the answer. If they're about the Bible, meaning the substance of the question leads us to what the Bible actually says, and it is asked in the form of a question, then you won't be docked at Jeopardy! points. Without that being said, though, we also want to begin every Thursday, Friday for those listening on Reach Radio with our rhetoric classes, how to talk to people. But before we get into any of that, we want to also make sure that God's the one talking, so Peter, want to start us off in a word of prayer, and we'll see where the broadcast goes.
1: Yep. Father, we thank you so much for the love and the kindness that you show to us on a daily basis. We thank you for giving us your Son, We thank you for giving us eternal life through him. Uh, We want to focus on you right now, Lord. We want to focus on your word and your truth. So uh, allow me and Sean to speak in a way that honors you, Lord, that that edifies those who listen in a better understanding of who you are and what your truth is all about. Uh, We love you so much, God, and in your name, amen.
0: That is true. Now... Last week we talked about listening, but of course receiving information properly is only as good as you can return it. So when it comes to, I guess, bad returns, uh, foul balls, and to use the American baseball term, there's obviously a very, very large number of ways people can do talking wrong, not just in getting their words jumbled up or failing to uh, articulate a point, but maybe even just keeping their ideas in, I guess, a poor order, where ultimately not only is the issue that you're talking about ultimately missed, but you commit what's called a fallacy. That's a fancy internet term for just a mistake in thinking. If the thoughts are numbers, the equation is the logic. So when it comes to rhetoric, us speaking to people in a proper way, We want to make sure that we not only recognize when someone's making that mistake, but also understand it well enough for us to prevent ourselves from making that same mistake. The one that we wanted to start with, and obviously there's formal and informal fallacies, there's some that are considered more prevalent than others, but in the age of the Internet, especially with the kind of discourse that we are experiencing in the world today, we wanted to start with one that you've probably been the victim of, whether you knew how to describe it in Latin or not. And that was the ad hominem fallacy. Ad hominem, or at the human level, is addressing or attacking the person rather than the argument. It's an informal fallacy, and when it comes to why that's a mistake, obviously we give examples of it, it's going to become relevant. But what kind of groundwork needs to be made before we even get that far?
1: Uh, Yeah, so... Like you said, Sean, last week we talked about how to listen, and right now we're talking about what to listen for. So last week we were given the benefit of the doubt that rhetoric can be used, and remember, rhetoric is the art of formal speaking. So this is kind of like what me and Sean are doing right now. We are not dialoguing with you directly. We are just speaking and giving prepared thoughts that hopefully will bless you. And we're using logic and reason to help edify you in particular topics. So uh, what you should be listening to is you should be listening to our arguments and understand that logical arguments can lead us to truth. God has designed our minds in order to understand truth, and therefore we can reason through things uh, in a way that leads us to God's truth. Truth is not something that's malleable. Truth is not something that just exists inside of each individual's head. There is objective truth, and we can actually get there through talking. Uh, the second form of rhetoric is dialectic. That's the type of arguing or persuasion that happens in a conversation. So it's you sitting down with a buddy or something like that, and you're just talking through a particular topic. So that's what listening can do. If I want to be able to engage in dialectic or even rhetoric, listening to other speakers before I make my points known to them, I need to be attuned to what their arguments are so that I could address them properly. Uh, This is, again, why me and Sean spend so much of our time studying other religions before we address them. We want to hear clearly what they're saying before we attack them. And maybe next week we'll get into straw man, uh, because that that deals a lot with people who don't listen and (laughs) just attack something that's not actually there. But at any rate, we need to also be listening not only for good arguments, but as Sean said, we do need to listen for bad arguments, because if you don't address fallacies in thinking, meaning addressing wrong ways that people are approaching a topic and assuming that they are doing this accidentally. Uh, If you're not able to address those bad forms of logic and you dialogue with the person, or again, you try to persuade someone on those false presuppositions, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere at all (laughs) right you're not going to make it to truth you're just going to be going in circles in proverbs 9 verse 7 solomon writes he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself so i need to be listening am i dealing with a scoffer by the way a scoffer is someone who looks down on something someone who they're not really listening to what you're saying they're just looking for ways to attack you And the ad hominem attack is a favorite for people who engage in this type of fallacy. They aren't, again, they aren't looking to engage, they aren't looking to understand where you're coming from, they just have already dismissed you before you've opened your mouth because they've prejudged you, they've prejudged your argument, they scoff at you. And what's the problem with that? If
0: you're dealing with a bad person, does that mean that the only thing they're capable of saying
1: are bad things? Right, and and the answer is no, right? There are bad people who could say very good and right things, and we see this in the Scriptures, by the way. We have recorded for us sayings of wicked people, in the Bible, and they're saying real things, true things. So a good example, this is Nebuchadnezzar. You know, if you just read the book of Daniel, you might think, like, "Mm, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. Uh, Look him up, right? Read about Nebuchadnezzar. He was not a good guy. He was a very evil king in many ways. Yet we have part of the Bible written by him like literally chapter four, of daniel, yeah, daniel. chapter four of daniel was written by this guy who's a pagan king uh, kind of at the end of the chapter he has a basic relationship with god but not really it took him
0: later in life yeah. he was as pagan as they came and behaved accordingly yeah. we're talking the brutalization of men women and children non-combatants we're talking about scorched earth policies and starvation and sieges which we have direct chronicles of in
1: the <laughs> books of jeremiah and lamentations yeah. it wasn't pretty that's that's right. And and even more than that, we have guys who are pagan kings who never even really repented, guys like Cyrus. Uh or Sennacherib. Yeah, Sennacherib, right? We have writings and, and sayings and edicts from these pagan kings that reflect truth. They reflect objective truth, even though the kings themselves were in error. They were evil men. But even a broken clock gets the time right twice a day. So. When you're dealing with evil people, they are correct. They are capable of making correct statements. So we cannot prejudge an argument based on where someone's coming from. The only
0: allowance for this kind of mindset is willingness to trust. Before you hear the argument, you need to have your guard up for untrustworthy people because they might, even if they sound like they're telling the truth, twist a few things here and there. Right. But that doesn't mean that the animus is off of us in understanding what the argument is, because two plus two equals four, even if a bad guy says it. That's
1: right. And And if we understand that someone who we're talking to is not trustworthy, That just means we have to look up what they're saying, you know. So uh, and that that's very important nowadays. And we'll get to that fallacy, the appeal to authority later. Um, Those are those are all very important things to be on guard for. So you guys can do your own homework, look up these logical fallacies. And me and Sean will get to them one by one. But regarding ad hominem, what if someone uses it against you? how do you address it? So obviously we shouldn't do it, right? If I'm listening to somebody and I am trying to dialogue with them, or maybe I'm performing rhetoric, I'm giving the gospel message. I'm not just going to stand up and say, you know, all of you are wrong because you are blank. You know, you are of this persuasion, you're of this ethnicity, you're of this religion, therefore you're just totally wrong, and therefore listen to me. That is a bad way to bring people into the gospel message. You cannot just attack them in their character. You have to go after their arguments. Yet what about them is wrong? Not just you're wrong because you're this thing. What about them is incorrect? You have to address them fairly. Now, if it's directed at you... How should you respond? Well, me and Sean are going to give you two examples in in the Bible of people who had ad hominem aimed against them. One didn't react very well to it. Uh, The other one did, because it's Jesus. So let's start with the one that didn't react too well to it, how he did react, and how he probably should have reacted. Yeah, in the book of Exodus chapter 2, we have an
0: example of this sort of ad hominem dismissal of a legitimately good claim. And this was, of course, after the incident where... Moses was feeling called to follow God's calling for his life, a legitimate thing, but in the wrong way. He saw an Egyptian taskmaster abusing a slave that was one of the fellow Hebrews that he had kinship with, and he more literally just straight-up murdered the guy. <laughs> now you might say, well that's noble, that's uh, standing against slavery, which we take for granted as far as a <laughs> ethic in the world today, but understand that the follow-up to this was interesting. Now after this, this is again in Exodus chapter 2 in verse 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 13 says when he went out the second day this is Moses behold two Hebrew men were fighting and he said to the one who did the wrong so it clarifies that this is addressing the right person there wasn't a misunderstanding someone made a mistake and they were both in a tussle over it. And he says, why are you striking your companion? So the question was, you ought, why are you striking your companion? But the point was, you ought not to be treating your companion, your brother, your fellow Jew, this way. The response is ad hominem. He says in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then his response was one of fear, not towards the Hebrews, but towards Pharaoh. So the emphasis and point is what? The argument is, I shouldn't listen to your correction of my behavior. Why? Because you're a murderer. What are the consequences of me not listening to what you did yesterday? And thus the issue was dismissed. But note, Does that mean that he is now justified in abusing his brother because Moses really abused an Egyptian the day before? No. No, Two different people, two different circumstances, your behavior is still wrong. Hmm. And Moses's correction was a valid one. You shouldn't strike someone or get into a fight with someone without probable cause, and even then there are better ways of dealing with disputes. But in the end, Moses responded in fear this is again at the end of verse 14, and said, "...surely this thing is known." So overcome by his own guilt, he disengaged from the conversation instead of bringing the conversation back to what the conversation was actually about. So that was his mistake. He defaulted to emotions, he allowed himself to be manipulated rightfully so, because it meant a price was now on his head, but that was the example of the ad hominem. The Israelite that was in the wrong, that was abusing his brother, said, you, Moses, are a murderer. So what does that mean to me, as who's just an abuser, who's a bully? Mm -hmm. Well, you're still a bully and I'm still a murderer, but we're talking about the bully thing. So can we
1: do that? And this is, a, this is a very good point. I love this example for a couple reasons because we're addressing ad hominem at this point of what if the attack or the accusation that someone is bringing against you is valid? And that's what's happening with Moses. There is a valid accusation against him. Now, in a healthy relationship, right, so if I'm dealing with my wife, for instance, and she brings up a character flaw, she's like, you did this yesterday, you did that, and it's valid, it's something that's true. Because we're in a loving relationship, and I know that the reason why she's bringing this up is, There might be some personal grievance against it. You did this against me, I'm unhappy, for sure. But there's also a level of love and benevolence that she's gonna aim at me. I care about you, this is a destructive behavioral pattern, I want you to change. Because of that, I can engage with her in honesty. I could say, okay, you you feel like I've done this thing, let's talk about it, and I can admit to it, I could talk through it with her, that's very important. If you're dealing with someone who wants to abuse you, and they object to you in this way. And that's what Moses realizes very quickly. This guy's not bringing this up because he cares about me. He's bringing it up as a threat that you better do what I want or I'm telling. That's what Moses inferred very quickly, and that's why he runs. If you are not getting, it's called in Latin, bona fide, right, good faith argument, someone who cares about you, right? If, you, if you're if you not dealing with someone who's coming from a good faith position and they're just out to get you, they're out to attack you, they're out to malign you, slander you, bring you down in any particular way, by admitting to whatever they're bringing against you, even if it's valid, by acknowledging it and confessing it, you realize that what you've done is you've dripped blood in the water. That's why you have the Maoist struggle sessions back in China where they would force confessions out of people. Now, again, why are they forcing the confessions out of them? They're not going to forgive them. They're going to use those confessions to condemn them, to take away any social standing that they had, to slander them, to smear their reputations in front of their communities before they kill them, right? That the was same the point. thing the
0: Muslim Inquisitions did when they were debating about Tawhid. It was what the Spaniards picked up when the Inquisitions were founded, and on it goes. But this isn't actually rational; it's emotional manipulation rather than factually acknowledging the issue. That's right. And that's also the funny part is that we can also end up flipping this on its head and. Um, not to segue into the second topic, but understand that there's a right and a wrong way to even point this out. Right. Because if you adopt the nasally Harvard accent and say, well, you see, I subscribe to the Reader's Digest, and what you have committed is an ad hominem fallacy, <laughs> so I will disregard what you have to say now. I just come across as a not the right way to do that, yeah. So <laughs> with that being said, understand rhetoric is also including good manners, as we right. talked about in our introductory session, but with that then in mind, it's addressing and recognizing the real issue right. and getting
1: back to it. And so again, if you're if you're dealing with someone and you have reason to believe, you have good reason to believe, this person is out to hurt you, right? So as a counselor, by the way, I deal with this sometimes. I deal with marriages that have gone into bad territory where there's legitimate abusive behavior happening and this type of ad hominem attack it's utilized to justify abuse. So you have someone who is abusing their partner, they're maybe physically, but maybe emotionally, which is which can be just as bad. And they're beating on their partner again either verbally or physically, and their partner is like, "Why are you doing this to me? This is wrong." And they say, "Well, you're so high and mighty, but the other day you yelled at our kids." Or they'll bring something like that up. At that point, you have to understand, this is not a good faith argument. They're not trying to help you out. If you say, yeah, you're right, and you humble yourself and you confess to it, all that's gonna lead to is more abuse. If there's someone who is out to get you and they're bringing up an accusation, even if it's a valid one, engaging with them in it is not the right move, right? So you see a lot of people in our culture today and they have their confessions, Right. They'll go. They said something on Twitter that may have been a little insensitive and it gets way blown out of this person's a racist. They're a bigot. I remember last year there was that uh, girl who was on The Bachelor. I don't even remember her name. My, My wife sometimes watches The Bachelor, but she was on The Bachelor. She was trying to get the attention of a black guy. And then it came out that when she was in high school, she went to an antebellum ball in the south. Right. So a ball where you wear frilly dresses and you pretend like you're in the eighteen hundreds in southern, you know, whatever, Mississippi. Now, people dug up okay. these photos of her and they're like, ah, she's a bigot. Because apparently the only reason why you would wear a dress like that and go to a ball like that is because you love slavery and you're white. And people started attacking her like that. And so she came out and she's like, I am so sorry for everyone that I've heard. And she starts going in this long confession. Now, here's the thing. Was it insensitive of her to go to an antebellum ball? Maybe, maybe. I mean, there's an argumentation that it really wasn't at all because there was an antebellum culture, right? Antebellum just means before the war. There was an antebellum culture that had nothing to do with slavery. So, I mean, you you could could, say
0: it's not smart because those floofy dresses don't do well in high humidity, (laughs) but that's not racist.
1: But they're ascribing intent to her that wasn't accurate. So she could have said... And again, if it was a good faith argument, she could have said, hey, maybe I could understand why that would be harmful, like why that would hurt your feelings that I went to a ball that is at a time period that was in slavery. Maybe you're being a little oversensitive, but hey, I could could own that and maybe people shouldn't do that kind of thing. Fine. But when you're dealing with a bunch of people that are just out to smear you, if you say, I'm sorry, you're not just apologizing to the accusation, you're also apologizing for the intent behind the accusation yes, the reason why I went to that ball is because I'm a racist, right? That's what you're insinuating and you're apologizing for something you never did. So if you're in a Twitter battle or something and you're really talking to someone that doesn't like you, that hates you and is slandering you, it's very important not to engage with the ad hominem attack because in doing so, you will just bring condemnation upon yourself and they're going to use that to further abuse you or to punish you for what you've said they're going to then take your response they're going to play, you see what they said you see i told you all christians are this way or you know you just don't engage with it that's not the right way to go about it now let's talk about a false ad hominem attack just a completely false one so this is jesus now jesus's response will teach us how to deal with both so as Sean said, it's not gonna do you any good to be like, well, that is an ad hominem attack, and that is beneath me, and I'm going to go about. It. You could do that, and maybe you'll win some intellectual snub points, but you know, that's about it. You're not gonna win the argument.
0: And understand as well, Jesus had been dealing with this for a very long time. Right. This is where it comes into a public confrontation. In the previous chapter, he is accused of saying, this is in reference to John the Baptist, he's possessed. Right. And then Jesus comes around and they say, look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, as if that's an insult. Yeah. And, of course, Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? You can't listen to nothing. Now, the chapter then continues in another situation, but with, unfortunately, the same audience. And how does the conversation go after setting up the context? He heals a man who was possessed. Right.
1: Right. And so, obviously, they cannot just... Sweep that under the rug. Everyone sees this guy. They know him. He was possessed. Now he's not possessed. You can't sweep the miracle under the rug, but maybe you can attack the character. So again, be careful. They're not going to attack the argument. Jesus' argument is, I'm the Messiah. Here's proof. I'm doing some pretty miraculous things. And instead of engaging with it, they attack his character. Now this is how they do it. So this is verse 23. And all the multitude were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? So people are really starting to think about it. Hey, he's claimed to be Messiah. Maybe he is Messiah. He's proving it. He's kind of proving it right now. The Pharisees respond. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. You see, the reason why he casts out demons is because he himself is in league with the demons. Now, that airtight logical argument right there, when you just observe it, you're like, that's really stupid, but you see what they're doing. It is an ad hominem attack. It's, don't listen to this guy. He's demon-possessed, right? Don't even listen to what he's saying. Don't be around him. He is in league with the demons. They are just trying to get people to not listen to Jesus to go away from him. Now listen to Jesus' response. Very, very insightful for us. This is what's known as reductio ad absurdum. (laughs) So Jesus says, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He has a little bit of advantage of us uh, towards us in that respect. But to be fair... I don't think you needed the powers of Jesus to know what was going on in that crowd. These guys lacked subtlety; they weren't pretty. They were pretty blatant in their uh, disregard for logic. But Jesus is pretty awesome, so he actually knows what they were thinking, even if they, with, without having to observe it, and said to them, "Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself." How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, uh, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he plunders his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad." Really amazing argumentation. Short, concise, but man, it goes for the jugular. There's a reason why after Jesus drops a bomb like this, there's no responses. It's because there really isn't a good response to that. He completely demolished their argument in less than two sentences in three different ways, and he then shows that they're the ones that are in the bad spot. So like how's he what do were it? the ways that he dealt with it? So let's go through them one at a time. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. So the first thing that he does is, he, notice, he doesn't deny it. He's not like, I am not of Beelzebub. How dare you? You know, like, he doesn't do that, which is what we would tend to do. Or like, uh, you know, how, how dare you accuse me of this? Look at all the miracles I'm doing. He doesn't engage on their level. He brings the conversation into a completely different perspective. He's like, let's think about your attack. If you're right, let, let's pretend the smart people are smart here
0: and say, if, in fact, I have performed an exorcism by Satan, is that a bad thing? No. Because if you're right, that means Satan's at civil war with himself, which is a good thing, that and you Satan's don't like done. it. That <laughs> yeah, I mean, Satan's done. But in the other stat, don't your children, your fellow Jews, also have exorcism teams, even in the Sanhedrin. Are they doing demon Civil War things too? Or do you think that they're from God? And then likewise, if this is from God, like me, why don't you
1: believe me? <laughs> and and then, I mean, even if I assume you're right, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, those are the beautiful things about the arguments that Jesus gives, where no matter how you think about it at that point, you're wrong. Right? So if you're right, you're wrong. If you're wrong, you're wrong. That's how wrong you are. And Jesus does this very, very well. Now, another thing that he points out is because he gets him to the point where you're just wrong, but then he pushes it even further. And he says, how can one enter a strong man's house or plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? So now he's pointing back to the miracle. He's not playing their game. He's not engaging with them. He is now, he is owning the topic. He is owning the subject right now, and he's bringing it back to what he did. He's like, I'm not gonna let you distract. I'm not gonna let you dismiss my proof, this evidence that I am the Messiah. I am bringing the conversation back to the evidence. And think about this, if I'm just a guy, right? I've proven I'm not demon-possessed, but if I'm just a dude, how can I cast out Satan? right you can't bind a strong man unless guess what you're stronger right so obviously the power that i'm dealing uh, with and unless you're in like a fraternity or something generally you're not on the same side that's as right. the one you're robbing <laughs> that's right so he's like if i'm stronger than satan what does that make me right <laughs> what does that make me so his argument leads to people's conclusion of not only am i not demon possessed but i am of god and if you reject me what does that make you right? So that is the argumentation that Jesus uses. So let's use a modern day example and try to apply some of what Jesus is doing. So remember, don't engage directly in it, look at their logic and question it, really pull it apart. So last week me and Sean were giving some classes on rhetoric and someone in the comment section mentioned that they were showing some of me and Sean's, uh, teachings, right? You say our past reason for hope broadcasts to one of their friends. And their friends said, well, they're just bigots. Okay? Now, how would we respond to that? Because that is an ad hominem attack. They're not addressing any of our specific points. How should someone respond to that using this methodology that we get from Jesus? Well, I can take the Moses route and basically own
0: it entirely. Yeah. I can say, yeah, sure. What does that have to do with what we said, though? they are going to be able to use that emotional vindication in their minds to still dismiss us even if it puts them in the wrong we can own up to something that isn't true and live with that before the throne of god but of course that doesn't accomplish the most possible good so if i own it i've basically jumped into a lesser mouse trap that isn't going to hurt me but still is going to go off don't want to head that direction another direction i could go is just not regard the conversation's accusation in the first place, yeah. I can ask maybe, what about what we said was bigoted? We were talking about I don't know, whether or not the uh, passage in uh, <laughs> maybe uh, Luke twenty three eleven and Matthew 27, tw- uh, 27 is contradictory when both acknowledge the same historical fact. That's not bigotry. I can look up the definition if you'd like. I'd put the challenge on them and said, you make the claim, you provide the proof, because that's not a rational conclusion. I'll just ask, you know, if (laughs) I'm the strong man here, that is what is ultimately going to matter. If I'm opposing a lie, that doesn't make me a bigot, that makes me on the side of truth. Are you, then, opposing the truth that doesn't make you a bigot that makes you a liar right. you're misrepresenting or slandering us then i could take the double jesus route not acknowledge not playing to the hands of any topic and just go right back to the issue you say that we're a bigot are you irrationally dismissing the truth claim that we're making on the basis of who we are on the basis of our skin color our religious beliefs what does that make you and on it goes but understand that this kind of rhetoric There's your word for the day, doesn't actually end up going anywhere. So you have to judge the person. So that's ultimately the options.
1: Bring it full circle. Uh, Proverbs 9, verse 7 says the passage I started with He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. So in this public forum, Jesus even though he knows that this is not a good faith argument, that he's not going to convince them, he engages with them anyway. Now, this is very important. His reason for engaging with them is not to convince them. He knows that they're not gonna be convinced. His reason for engaging is to convince those who are listening, the audience. So sometimes people ask, well, why do Christians debate? you know, especially guys like, you know, Richard Dawkins, who basically only does ad hominem attacks, or uh, Lawrence Krauss, the straw mans, yeah. also, <laughs> yeah, to, a mixture of strawmans and ad hominems, that's kind of like their go-to. Why even go, why even debate those people? Well, sometimes you're not debating them for their sake, you're debating them maybe for those one or two people in the audience who are legitimately seeking, right? They're, they're not fully in the atheist camp, they're not fully in the Christian camp. They
0: know about the atheist camp to say they sound like they know what they're talking about, but if a Christian comes up and basically debunks that myth, then there's a better conversation to be had in the
1: future. Right. And so if you're online and you're engaging with someone and it's just the vitriol that you see on social media, sometimes it's best to just avoid it. But every now and then you might be like, maybe I'll engage with this person for a little bit and allow those who are engaging with this particular thread to read the arguments, right? Maybe I'm doing it for their sake. There's an argument for that, for sure. But regardless, if I recognize that I am dealing with someone who cannot be reasoned with, right? They don't actually want to hear the arguments, they just want to attack, they just want to slander, they just want to go around the topic at hand. If I'm dealing with someone like that, it's what Solomon is saying is, you're only gonna get shame for yourself, right? There's a certain point where you gotta recognize, I'm not getting anywhere with this person and continuing to engage with them is bringing me down, it's not lifting them up. So I'm gonna disengage, and let them be right in their own mind. What's the rule for that? I always use the Titus 3 verse 10 passage. Reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and self-condemning. Give it two really good tries, right? So they come at you with an ad hominem, something like that. You respond to it as well as you can, as rationally and as calmly as you can. And if you do it twice well... And they're still just like, oh, you're just a big, you're, you're a Christo fascist. You don't know what I'm talking about. All right. Then you could just sure. walk away from the conversation <laughs> and they will be right in their own, in their mind. And when they talk to their friends later, they won that conversation. That's fine. <laughs> and if you, you don't know. like
0: that, there's an opportunity to grow past pride because that's something we struggle with too.
1: That's true. All right. Any any last thoughts on ad hominem? No, just uh, make
0: sure that when you recognize these things, that as the wise strategist does, it doesn't appeal or focus on the cheese. It remembers this is a trap and then responds accordingly if we understand how to talk to people and maintain good manners, then what ultimately is going to matter isn't just that we kept our logic sound in our conversation, but that God was glorified as a result of the way that we not only talk to people, but how we talk to them. Because human nature being what it is, speaking from recent experience, you get involved in any meaningless conversation for long enough, it will drag you down, it will bum you out, it will send your emotions in a tizzy, and you don't need that. But if on the other hand you have the opportunity—this is our suffering for your gain—the point then being made is this. If you are willing to say, what was said, I'm willing to be accountable for, that's good enough. And if what was said is in line with God's character, the foundation of logic and reason, then God bless you. Understand that is worth answering for, rather than just saying, well, I tried to talk this person off the cliff, not realizing they were the cliff. I'm not going to change the nature of someone who's going to dismiss me before we even started. So let us know if that was all clear, and we'll look forward to our next rhetoric lesson next time. Brief pause for the YouTube editing. (laughs) Now we will go out to your questions. Uh, This one was sent along to us by email. This is in regards to, again, following up on that issue of pride and not uh, wanting someone to think that they're right in their own eyes. The reverse stat is kind of difficult. Uh, The question comes from Jeffrey, and he wants to know how to better understand humility in Christ, because it seems like if I look at myself and think that I'm worthless as opposed to great, I'm still being proud because I'm focusing on myself. So what actually is humility? Is it self-invalidated? Is it self-deprecation? Is it self-enggrandizement? Or is it not self at all?
1: Right. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think, gave the best definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So the problem with pride is that it's self-focus. I'm thinking about myself. And notice, by the way, when Adam and Eve fall in the garden in Genesis 3 and they start thinking about themselves, they engage in narcissism, it doesn't lead them to be proud or arrogant. It It actually enables them to be shameful, So actually when we look at ourselves, when we really investigate ourselves, the bend will traditionally actually be more towards shame than it will be towards narcissism and selfishness. So be careful of that. There are two sides of the very same coin and they are poison from the very same well. So either side of the coin, you are engaging in pride and self-delusion. Which is why, by the way, so many people in our culture are struggling with depression and anxiety because they've been taught from a young age, that if you want to figure out who you are, you just got to look deep, deep, deep inside of yourself and you'll figure it out. This is why we have pride parades. This is why we have all these things, self-authenticity, self-love. The message is that if you think about yourself, if you look inside, you will figure it out and you will be a better person. But the more people look inside, the more shame-ridden they get, the more anxious they get, the more depressed they get, and the more aimless they feel. You will never figure out who you are by just looking inside of yourself. Because as the Proverbs say, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein lies death. The more you look in, the less insight you're going to achieve. And by the way, as a counselor, people come to me and that's all they really wanna do. They just want to narcissistically look into themselves right? They're not actually there to get better. They're there to just investigate themselves because they think they're so dang fascinating. Uh, by doing that, you're not actually, again, you're not going to grow because you're not listening to what the counselor is saying. You're not doing what the Proverbs say as to actually investigating what someone's telling you in humility. You are instead just looking for validation of what you already believe, right? You just want affirmation. Now, when it comes to humility, how do we achieve that then? If that's what narcissism is and that's how you achieve narcissism, well, then how do you achieve humility? Now, this is what makes the virtue of humility so difficult, because it's the only one that you really can't think your way out of. Because if you try not to be proud, well, you're still thinking about yourself. You're thinking about yourself more in order to not be proud. So in order to not think about yourself, you have to engage your mind or orient it towards something greater than yourself. This is why the Bible speaks so highly of worship. One of the things that we're doing in worship is we're orienting our minds and our bodies to be in awe of God, and awe, wonder, praise, is actually the only stance a human being can be in where we've truly forgotten ourselves. This is one of the things that great artists throughout the ages have spoken about of why the arts are so important. Um, Irene Murdoch, again, not a Christian, uh, atheist philosopher. She was talking about having a really rough day and struggling with a lot of anxieties, and all of a sudden a bird flies over and actually goes right by her face and lands in a position where she could see the sunset perfectly and the shadow of its wings, and she's just in awe. And she's like, for that brief moment, I was radically unselfed, and by becoming radically unselfed, I became more of myself. And I love that line because what she's saying is she found identity not through looking in, but through looking out. I want nature to reflect to me what I am. I want community and others to reflect to me what I am. I don't wanna just hold a mirror up to my own mirror and just see an infinite regression of self. That's what she understood and that's what she figured out. Art, beauty, these things enable us to be unselfed. It enables us to get out of ourselves and to think about something else for a change. Right, So when we engage in beauty, that's what we do. And since God is the ultimate object of beauty and glory, He is the ultimate object that will unself you. So focusing on Him and worshiping Him will do that, but there are other methods of doing that as well. The second thing is, I need to focus on others. So instead of, again, looking into myself, look out, right? The opposite of pride is actually not humility. Humility is just the absence of pride. The opposite of pride is love right? If I'm seeking the betterment of others and I'm seeking to be invested in their lives and caring about what's going on in them, I am not thinking about myself in those moments. I have become distanced from my own internal dialogue that's self-deprecating. So those are some helpful hints. Look at beauty. Look at God. Look at your neighbor. Seek to be out of yourself as much as you can.
0: Let us know if that helps you out, Jeffrey. Here's a question from Yari, who wants to know about the claim that was made to him by an individual who want to know in regards to certain things that have a historical setting, and keeping this in balance with the following quote. The Bible was written for us, but not addressed to us. How do I keep this in proper balance? Well, it's a dangerous one, especially from the kind of position that you were hearing it from, because especially when people take this from a Pentecostal bent, the denomination that uses more experience-based than Scripture-based approaches towards godliness, there's a risk that a lot of people take, and not only going too far beyond the truth that it ends up a lie, but because it's so into the truth they say it's a super truth, it's a new truth, which isn't the case. When it comes to the Bible's purpose, obviously we will acknowledge, and this is the truth in the statement, that there are historical context to what was being said, to whom, when, and Why? However, its relevance to us is no more diminished for someone else having an audience to hear this first than the fact we're now the audience hearing it today. The question is interpretation, and this is another word that's thrown out a lot today. Well, that's your interpretation, but this is my interpretation, which is just as erroneous as someone saying, well, that's your truth and this is my truth, as if there is no wrong answer. The Bible doesn't put itself out as some inkblot test that just means whatever you trauma you experienced in your childhood or something. In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, this is an interesting observation made by the Apostle Peter, who, by the way, was a primary eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection, so kind of an authority on the guy who wrote the book. He said in verse 19, of 2 Peter 1, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. So we're not just addressing the word, the prophetic word, the prophet or the prophetic nature of something means you're speaking on behalf of another. This isn't Peter's opinion, this is something that's spoken on behalf of someone else. And it's also being verified, how? Well, noting this, which you do well to heed as a light which shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first, so here's the verification, "...no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man," something that's fallible, men wrote the Bible, men make mistakes, therefore the Bible's full of mistakes, Well, that statement was written by men and men make mistakes. Is that statement full of mistakes? It's a nonsensical tail chasing journey. So just follow the conversation. It didn't came by the will of man, but men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So if the Spirit, God in as much in his fullness as the Son and the Father, was the one who directed the thoughts of these individuals in their times and in their settings, but from a infinite from an eternal, from a divine perspective, then there's not only a actual way to get this right, and thus everything beyond that is de- by definition wrong, we also need to understand, and this is where the diplomacy of this matter comes in, the perspective to which the Spirit is speaking to us, not just the fact that He had an intent when He wrote, say for example, the passage you cited in your question, but even more importantly, As he was speaking these things, he could do so with more than just that immediate audience in mind. Do I give God enough credit for that? We can also go to other passages like Paul's letters to Timothy, noting uh, chapter 3 and verse 16 where he, or verses 15 through 16 of the first, where he makes the second, I believe, second, Uh, he makes the point of saying that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, the same language that Peter's using here, and he says that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work, for reproof, for doctrine, for correction, or instruction in righteousness, in noting all those things. So if the Bible has a purpose, if the Bible had an intention, if the Bible had an author, it would be the same kind of connection I would be desiring, as if, say, for example, Peter, I was reading Rooted in Sin and Rescued by Love, and asking your, uh, I guess, vague opinion on the matter. Uh, I I mean, what reason would I have to go to you for the intents of that book, maybe over Bo or my father? I mean, obviously Bo taught you, so he's a few steps ahead as far as the topic of sin and love, and my father's certainly more educated than all three of us put together, but why is it that I should go to you first if I'm asking questions about that particular book?
1: Because I wrote it.
0: Oh. Yeah. So if I have connection to the author, I can know intent. I can go to informed sources to maybe clarify things, but if I'm going all the way to the top on this, (laughs) then whether or not something is controversial is quite frankly on them. Whether something's misunderstood or not can be verified within the text itself and how it was applied. But if I go so far as to say, not in word but certainly in application that's just kind of their interpretation we can brush that aside there's a reason why that's in the scripture it could be just to tell us what happened historically I don't go to you know second chronicles 35 and note the significance of why parbar west was set to at causeway and parbar but if on the other hand i were to say oh god built the temple with the intent of it being structurally sound got it I don't know what a par bar is, but I can look that up later. That has a purpose, that has an intent. If on the other hand I'd say, I don't like this passage, well it's not a matter of the Bible's intent, it's my intent to get that out of the Bible. So make sure you don't fall into that trap, that's the line. Am I looking for an answer or am I avoiding one? And that's what's going to be key.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say the exact same thing, just in a different way. (laughs) Um, That's how right answers work. (laughs) Aristotle, he had this really interesting idea of how thoughts build on one another. So he created a trajectory of how thoughts work. So it begins with what we would call physics and metaphysics. So physics is the way of the natural world. Metaphysics is the way of the philosophical or theological world. So that would include God, the angels, things like that. Uh, Then he went to ethics, which is the way that we ought to treat others then politics, which is how a community ought to treat one another, and then it went to poetics, which is how artists should be able to treat reality, essentially, in order to benefit people. And he saw these as going in a line, so there was a digression that happens. So they're all linked, but they definitely fall under different categories. So in the Bible, we have certain statements that are metaphysical statements, meaning there's statements about God's nature, there's statements about who He is. That's for everybody, right? That's for all time and all peoples. When it has statements about physics, right, the Bible does say things about the natural world. Once again, that's for all time and all people. When it says things about ethics or morality, all time and all people, right? That's, that's for everybody because that's how we treat one another. However, the Bible also says things about politics, how certain communities ought to treat one another. Now, while those communal statements are not going to be applicable for all time and for all people, they will be built upon the ethics, the metaphysics, and the physics, right? That's where those political statements come from. So, for instance, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells women to wear headdresses, that's a political statement. He is dealing specifically with the polis of Corinth. Polis just means city-state. So he's dealing with Corinth— And their particular area, their culture. And if you didn't wear a headdress as a woman and you shaved your head as a woman in that culture... Two key details there. If you have long hair, you don't have to wear the veil. That's right. You would be a prostitute. That's what prostitutes did. That's what they looked like. That's what they looked like. So in order to avoid that cultural interpretation, Paul gives a political advisory to the people at Corinth. However, he builds that political statement on ethical statements. He builds it on ethical statements of... This is the morality. This is how God is. And then he builds that upon metaphysical statements, which is God's nature, and then on physical statements as to the nature of man and women and childbirth and things like that. So Paul builds on these three things, physics, metaphysics, ethics, and then he makes the political statement. So in the Bible, when we're reading statements, we need to figure out, first of all, what kind of a statement is it? Is it a physical statement? Is it a metaphysical statement? Is it an ethical statement? If it's one of those three, it's for all time and all people. You cannot reinterpret that. If it is a political statement though, it is addressed to a particular city-state, its particular group or culture, that doesn't mean you could just disregard it. That means you gotta look for what are the ethical, physical and metaphysical properties to that political statement that I can apply to my day-to-day life. One of my favorites is actually from Leviticus where it says, it's a weird thing to say, it's one of my favorites, but it says if you have a roof, then you need to build a parapet around it. And people are like, what the heck does that mean? Well, back in the day, if you had guests over, a lot of times it's hot. We live in Tucson, we understand that. You would have a lot of parties on your roof. And so if you got a roof and you don't build a parapet, which is like a little guardrail basically around it, then people could fall off and injure themselves. So it's saying, if you got a roof, you gotta build a parapet around it. Now, as an American today, do I read that and say, aha, so I need to put a guardrail around my roof, regardless if you could actually stand on it, and if anyone who doesn't do it, they're in violation of Levitical law, and therefore God is going to judge them? No. I say this is clearly a political statement. However, there are ethics undergirding it and physics undergirding it and metaphysics undergirding it. I need to understand those. So maybe a modern example would be, if you own a pool, put a gate around it, right? Something like that. If you have something that could be a danger to someone else, then do things to make it less dangerous so you don't harm people unintentionally. So that's how I would respond to it. We need to be more critical about the way that we read scripture. Again, when you deal with Pentecostal people, as Sean said, this isn't true for all people from Pentecostal backgrounds, but they do tend to be more experience-based than scripturally based. So just know that when you go into a conversation with someone like that, doesn't mean you can't get through to them, but they're going to be arguing on a more emotional level, and that's okay. You just got to be able to get them to the text and, and be able to describe it in that way to them.
0: All right, uh, here's our contradiction for the day. This is the supposed claim that the Bible contradicts itself in God being warlike or peaceful. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3, it says that he's a warrior. In Romans 15 and verse 33, it says he's peaceful. Now, let's uh, iron man this a little bit. What would actually make this a contradiction? Because the person who wrote this, again, is kind of following the trend here. If we're going to say there's a contradiction, what do we mean? We're saying that there's a violation of the second formal law of logic. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel themselves out. If that's the case, then the Bible would have to say in Romans chapter 15 and verse 33, God does not commit war, he is only peaceful. In Exodus chapter fifteen and verse three, that would be contradicted if it said God never commits himself to peace. He is only capable of war. It'd basically be like comparing Ares to someone in Greek mythology that isn't Ares. So the point being made is that we have a fundamental conflict of nature between God. That's what they tried to say. Now Is that even the case? Well, let's read the passages. In Exodus 15 and verse three, I'll start in verse one. This is the song of Moses that was sung after the events of the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. So what's this? First of all, it's a song, acknowledging a historical event where what? God came to Israel's defense militarily. It's not describing his fundamental nature. It's celebrating the fact that he won a battle. He's a man of war. Although, wait, is he a man? Ah, so this is not only in the context of a song, but making other statements that need to be understood in generalities. Now let's go to Romans chapter 15, verse 33, and then I looked this up, it was embarrassing. It says, Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I don't see a conflict, because the fact that God provides peace can be done through war, like Israel having an army bearing down on them. It's not espousing pacifism unless you insist upon that in the text, which doesn't match with other texts, which is how we interpret texts.
1: And it is a mistake in terms. Uh, Some people in our modern culture think of peace as the absence of conflict. Uh, But that's not what the Hebrews meant when they said peace. As uh, Ultron said in uh, Avengers 2, you're confusing peace with quiet. That's right. (laughs) And that is a very good illustration of what this point is. Uh, Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of harmony. And when there's something disharmonious happening, the only way to get to peace is to cut that out, right? So if you're dealing with a group of people that want to be at peace, they want to be unified to another group of people, but the other people only want war, the only way to... uh, achieve peace is to be able to defeat those people, to get them out of the way, and sometimes by violent means. So God is always seeking active harmony in his creation, but there are aspects and ideals within the creation that are antagonistic to peace. They cannot be peaceful. They will not bring harmony to the creation, and so the only way for God to be able to bring about true peace is to destroy those arguments or those viewpoints. That's what Jesus said to his disciples, do not think I came to bring peace, but a sword, right? He's not saying, oh, you're mistaken. You know, when Isaiah said, I'm the Prince of Peace, it was, Isaiah was kind of wrong. I'm actually the Prince of War, you know, like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, 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 don't think that I've only come to achieve peace and quiet. Believe that I've come to bring about true peace, everlasting peace. And that means that I have to attack those things that are antithetical to harmony, And And then he goes on to
0: say that's going to divide homes, because there are people who don't want that to take place. They'd rather have quiet than to resolve the conflict between them and God. They think there either A, is no conflict, or they think that they're God, and thus no conflict with themselves. But now there's a conflict with you. Mm -hmm. And that's the unfortunate aspect of the truth. It doesn't adjust itself for the sensibilities of its participants. So make sure that when you deal with a contradiction, or you're hearing about a contradiction in the Bible, three steps. A, know what a contradiction is that's a big fancy word that is used to intimidate and emotionally manipulate people don't fall for the bad rhetoric tell them if i were to look that up have you looked this up first of all call their bluff say well does it can you show me where and when that's also going to accomplish a lot. Because if they can't show you, or if they themselves haven't looked into this, but just took the word of an atheist website that came up with all these things, and I question even that, then we have a problem almost solved by the one who instigated it, which is fun to watch. The third thing is, of course, and most importantly, at the end of the conversation. Does it bring you back to Jesus, or does it just show that you're an expert in Bible trivia? Again, it's fun to watch someone trip over themselves, but that's not the goal in conversations. It's fun to see someone who meant for you to be harmed to then be harmed on their, I guess, annals of their own argument. But the goal should always be—and this is what we need to pray, you can pray for me in this regard, because it's getting harder, and it will only continue to be—to seek their ultimate spiritual good, to say, if I were to answer this question, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? Because as we talked about in our rhetoric lesson, engaging a conversation in which is insincere where they don't want to hear the answer is pointless and say okay i guess the bible's uh, flawed then on something that isn't in fact the case we don't have to be bothered by that but they will when they answer for it thank you all for being with us here today we'll look forward to the next time that we are able to answer your questions if you weren't able to get us your questions email them to us and we'll look forward to answering them next time until then this has been peter martin with sean richards on a reason for hope god bless you